0: Hello, I'm Corey Stamper, an elder at City Church. Our Old Testament reading today is from Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my right. You gave me room when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. How long, you people, shall my honor suffer shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the faithful for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. When you are disturbed, do not sin. Ponder it on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, oh, that we might see some good. Let the light of your face shine on us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and wine abound. I will both lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me lie down in safety. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading this morning is from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 4. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ.
1: Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think and lean into these words of the psalmist this morning that you would enlarge our hearts and you would remind us that you're the God that makes room for us in our distress. Would you meet us Father, Son, and Spirit as we reflect on these things together in our own troubling times, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, today is Trinity Sunday. It's a time when the church throughout the world remembers that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this unity of love um, invites us into the experience of love itself. That the way we live with God and the way we live with one another would be reflected of God's own self, His love. And so we gather this morning to celebrate this, just as we did last week when we celebrated the gift of Pentecost, but we do so in a context that feels so foreign to the very things that we're celebrating. The pain of our world is dominant. The threads of our culture and society uh, reflect a discernible lack of love and a lack of unity in contrast to the world and life that God longs for and that he invites us into. The global health crisis was bad enough for everyone, and we were beginning to recognize even inside of that the reality of racial disparity, But the death of George Floyd exposes the darker and more violent side of racial disparity and sadly the complicity of the state in these injustices as well. What a painful week and weeks it's been it's been a week of protesting, and by the week's end, by the yesterday, most of these protests have been largely peaceful in nature as black and brown and yellow and white-skinned people around the world and in our own city cry out for justice and for change. I have to admit that as I've thought about how do you preach to our congregations in this time, how do we share words Uh, It's been hard. It's been undoing even of my own self as I've reflected on what to say, how to situate a text of scripture inside of our contextual moment, inside of our life, inside of our questions that we cry out to God with. It's a hard moment for us. Pastors traffic in words, yes, probably too many words. But what do we say this morning uh, and what do we think this morning As predominantly white congregations that live with incredible privilege, how do we sort out the complexities of our world and of our black and brown neighbors and the disparities that they experience and even those inside of our own congregation? How do we think about these realities together this morning? As we entered the summer thinking primarily of the global health crisis, Chris, Jonathan, Scott, and I began to plan the summer preaching series, and we thought it would be a good time to take the book of Psalms in hand and lean into these words because they're words of comfort. They're words that the church across generations and God's people throughout time have leaned into in order to construct their world and understand how God would have them talk. To one another and talk to God. We think that in the aftermath of realizing and being foregrounded in the problem and the struggle of racial inequalities that all the more these words are important. The book of Psalm teaches us how to talk to God, how to worship in the midst of an array of human experiences and emotions that fit almost every circumstance, those of joy and laughter and happiness but certainly those of despair and darkness and uncertainty and of anger itself. God's people have leaned into these words across generations and especially when words fail them. I became more acquainted with the book of Psalms when I was 17 years old. I was clinically depressed at the time and after reading multiple self-help pop psychology books that I'd gotten from the public library in order to better understand my own dark feelings and personal experiences. And after trying even little forms of Eastern medication as I sort of began to connect with those traditions, I picked up the book of Psalms at the encouragement of my pastor and I just started reading the words. Not really even knowing what I was saying sometimes, but I made those words my own, and I let them inform the way I started to think about my own experiences as a 17-year-old boy. This morning, Psalm 4 is before us, and it begins with the experience of distress. In the presence of enemies, scholars think that Psalm 4 falls upon the heels of Psalm 3, not just literally in its order, but truthfully in the way it was composed. In Psalm 3, we learn that David is thinking about perhaps the situation with Absalom, his son, the revolt that he performed against inside of the kingdom, and all of the dissolution that came to David and to the people of God in the context of that political conflict and family dispute. These are prayers born of a context, but beautifully they are stripped of all the particular language so that we allows and makes room for any reader that would pick up these words in any context of history and say, my distress, and enter these words of our own experience to wed them to the words that Scripture gives us to think about an experience of distress as we talk to God. Something like the global health crisis qualifies. The prevailing sin of systemic and racial injustice and police brutality, these qualify, as do any other distress that you're presently experiencing in this life. Let's think about the teaching of this psalm and the prayer itself in three parts. The prayer in a time of distress, living in a time of distress, and hoping in a time of distress. First prayer, verses one to three. The psalmist almost seems to remind God, I am still here. And the circumstances are distressful, God. They're hard. They're unbearable. They're difficult. They're hard and almost impossible. And when I look out, the enemy sure seems to be winning, carrying the day. The psalmist remembers here in this moment of crying out for God's attention or seeking God's attention that God is a spacious God. What a beautiful concept to think about just for a moment that God is a God who makes room for those who are in distress. And the psalmist seems to be recalling his own prior experiences of the roominess of God, We might think of the welcome of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the communion of the Trinity as they open up an invitation in their spaciousness for us to join them. Verse 2 takes us into more of the particulars around the distress. What did it look like to be distressed in that particular moment in David's life? Well, it's an experience of dishonor. It's an experience of shame. It's a context in which prevailing vain words and lies think deceit, think narcissistic words and lies that uphold David's experience of present and unjust distress, the circumstances of disorder and unjust order. It isn't hard for us to take these words in that moment of distress and place them in the lips of everyone that's gathered in protest, either bodily or in spirit, over the last week. Because injustice is dishonoring and conceit and lies, institutionally and culturally, prop up these racial disparities, a law and order that is not real law and order, at least not for all. You've heard the phrase that we stand on the shoulders of giants. We usually use this metaphor in a moment of happiness when we've been awarded some acknowledgement of our contribution to something, that we've moved the ball forward in some way. It's a metaphor that we use to humble ourselves and to remember that whatever we've contributed to the good of society, it's because someone else contributed good behind us. And we stand on their shoulders. We're not alone in our contribution. And so we acknowledge that others have also sought knowledge and achieved it and sought truth and achieved it and beheld beauty and brought it forward and goodness. It's a lot easier to think about the positive giants on which we stand. But it's much, much harder to recognize that we also stand on the shoulders of monsters like systemic and institutional racism a social structure that has largely scapegoated black and brown neighbors across the long history of America and even perhaps the world, made no room for their lives. We stand on these monstrous shoulders, whether we like it or not, and whether we feel it or not, or feel it to be true or not, they are real. They don't always feel monstrous to us, especially if life is, fi- is turning out for us in some, some way that we desire or have designed, and we rarely acknowledge their existence. I was born to a white family in the rural outskirts of Raleigh, North Carolina. My family relocated to the upper, upper middle class and the predominantly white side of North Atlanta as I was entering middle school. And like almost everyone that graduated from my high school, I shuffled off to college, the first in my family to do so simply because of the accident of my whiteness and the accident, perhaps, of my family and a family's move from a rural space to a suburban space in which everyone else was doing these kinds of things. But that was not and it is not the case for so many others in our culture and in our world. So the question that this psalm, I think, invites us to think about is the lies, the monstrous lies and the vain conceits and the patterns that sort of uphold the system of inequality in our world. Verse 3 reminds us beautifully, I think, that God is not mocked by such dishonoring and conceited words and lies, that amidst this world of distress and injustice, the Lord keeps making room for the distressed. So the psalmist says, I will cry out and he will hear me. The dishonoring regimes of our world and of our country even are not ultimately going to succeed in propping up the evil they imagine. But the second thing, as we move from simply acknowledging that we can talk to this God who makes room and we can be honest with this God, we can even ask this God to remember that we're still here in the midst of our feeling that he's not. We have the question of how do we actually live life now in this world? In the middle of distress, that has not changed. And verses 4 and 5 take us into that space. How shall we live? Notice the wisdom of this prayer as it moves beneath this oppressive regime. When you are disturbed or other translations say, in your anger, do not sin. Ponder on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Sit with these three simple exhortations for just a moment. Be angry without sinning. Sometimes for us, we often think about these in interpersonal ways, a conflict inside of your family or your home or with a colleague in the workspace. But it's also possible to think about this in the larger scale of human society as we recognize the institutional quality of things that we actually ought to be angry about. The prayer recognizes the legitimacy of anger as a response. And I think it actually probably almost certainly invites us to become angry if we are not angry. But without sin, which can sometimes feel near impossible to us. Some of us are angry about some things, but we're actually missing the deeper things about which we might be angry because God is angry. We're more anxious about the riots and the looting and the way they disturb our personal lives and the life that felt normal to us before than we are about the racism that underlay these violent outbursts. Of course, no one thinks that riots and looting are good things. No one ever would affirm those things as good, but are they understandable responses? This week I was reading something my friend Chuck DeGroat wrote. He's a psychologist and a professor and he shared the story of a counseling session that he was leading with a client in which they finally broke through to a memory and an honest recognition of a previous experience of being sexually abused. Her reaction was one of rage, he said. She started yelling in the room and shouting obscenities. She threw a lamp across the room that crashed on the floor, and a colleague, obviously in the next room, overheard these tumultuous events happening in the counseling room, and they feared for Chuck and even for the client, and so they called the police in that moment of disorder. But the question that Chuck left us with is just this, was it sin to yell obscenities and throw lamps? His answer is simply, it was not. It was an instance of holy rage over sin committed against her young life. She was rightly enraged. Do not sin. In this particular context of David's distress, or even of our own distress, it might simply mean this. Do not live by the same practices of dishonoring, shaming, vain words, and lies that prop up whatever circumstance of distress you're experiencing. It might simply mean that we not be individuals and communities, a church that returns evil for evil. We're invited though to become disturbed by the racism because the normal that most of us have previously enjoyed is not normal. It is denied so broadly on the basis of race to others. But notice where the prayer goes after we move from this space of holy rage. It moves into a practice I think we could call holy listening. Ponder on your beds in silence. That's something that's hard for almost any of us, particularly those in our community that are quick to want to fix things, to address the broken disorder, to become a doer. It just feels better to get active, to interfere, to intervene. But before we can offer right sacrifices of doing, it seems that it's important, at least for the psalmist here, to search his own heart before God and neighbor, to become one who listens, one who learns, not simply by reading and study, but in the context of relationship in our circumstance So let me urge you to listen to all the podcasts that you want to listen to. I'm certainly listening to them. And let me encourage you to read books because there's so many great books that address the problem of racism. So many beautiful voices out there sharing and guiding us and leading us. But let me urge you to get into relationship with real people who experience something opposite of yourself. To reach out to black and brown and white and yellow friends, not merely to relieve your own conscience, but to unmask the lies, to begin to be able to name the monster upon whose shoulders we all stand. The next thing the psalmist leads us to think about are these right sacrifices. What are they? We know that they are far more costly than merely the keeping of holy days, the honoring of some church feast, the honoring of fasts that were set up in ancient Israel or even in the modern church today. There's something far deeper than just simply collectively gathering in a church building for worship, which we can't even do right now. Psalm 51 says that the sacrifices that God loves are a broken and contrite heart. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17 says that we should learn to do right, to make sure that justice is done. And that means helping the oppressed, making sure that widows are defended and orphans have their rights. We're invited, in other words, to utilize whatever relative privilege we have to think not just about ourselves, But to anyone that might be excluded from the privileges and benefits that are working for you right now to move toward those who are in a greater distress than yourself for the sake of those that are left out in society, those for whom society doesn't naturally work. In both of our church communities, this is something I really love about our deacons because you have so beautifully led us in thinking about what it might mean for us as two congregations in the city of Philadelphia to connect and engage the places of distress in our city, and even in our world. You've helped us learn how to participate, if only in prayer sometimes, or just to hear the story of how we've given money, or to connect with real needs in real places. I love that this is so central to the work of both of our church communities. You've led in big and small ways. You've connected us with opportunities to engage in literacy in our city and in our community by helping us come along children who struggle to read and helping us just take moments to teach simple words and to listen in compassion as a child learns to read word upon word, book after book. You've helped us learn that there are those in our city and community that have tremendous food insecurities and housing insecurities and so through the Ministry of Emmanuel or through the Ministry of UCHC, you help us connect by feeding those that are hungry and caring about the very practical needs of real people for whom society is not working. You've helped us learn about the value of refugees in the world You've reminded us that Jesus himself and his family lived as a refugee for much of his own life and you've helped us value relocating refugees to our own city of Philadelphia. You've taught us the importance of caring about individuals who are largely forgotten in our society because they're locked up in a prison somewhere. And so when these citizens return to society, you've helped create space for them to live in and find community and learn what it looks like to reorder their lives among ordinary citizens. You've led us in some really beautiful ways in being a church to manifest this likeness of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to make room for those in distress. And even now, I realize fully that the moment we're upon with COVID and all of the unknown realities that it may entail for our city, that even now you're thinking creatively about how do we leverage resources for the sake of need, we don't even know what those needs will be. And as we face this moment of tremendous racial tension and uncertainty and horror, the horror of violence against black and brown bodies, you're asking us to think about and leading us in thinking about what it means to offer right sacrifices in that space. Thank you for your love. Thank you for leading us so beautifully. Thank you for helping us have an imagination for things beyond our own personal experiences of privilege. Pray, live, what about hope? How do we hold on to hope in the midst of distress? Verses six to eight, the end of the psalm. Oh, that we might see some good. Let the light of your face shine on us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and wine abound. I will both lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord. Make me lie down in safety. These are among some of the most important words in this particular moment of prayer because it's the moment when we discern that the circumstances of the psalmist's life have not changed. The distress is still there. The injustice is at play in the world, and it's at play strongly. Their new wine and their grain continue to abound. These are metaphors for riches and wealth and success and privilege built upon the lies and the vain conceit that have propped up institutional injustices. It's all there. It's all still happening. And yet David leads his community then, and we lead into the church now, remembering that it is possible for us to remember more than any other thing that God is a God who cares about the distressed. And even when we're not looking, even when they cry out for our help and we're not listening, that is not so with God. He continues to listen. He continues to stir up society that we would listen to. He is with us and that enables us to carry the ball forward. And it enables us to live with boundaries and to live a life of rhythm in which we lie down and sleep and rest because the Lord Alone makes us lie down in safety. Here in this moment in which the enemy remains empowered, we are invited to remember God's presence. Yesterday as I was walking around our city, I listened to podcasts, which is something I do quite often. I listened to an interview with ta Coates. It was called, Why is ta Coates Hopeful? And I have to admit, I just saw the title and I thought I have to listen to this because he's hopeful. He's hopeful simply because of this, that unlike the protests of the 1960s during the civil rights movement that were predominantly arose within the black community and were generated out of the black community and made up primarily of black voices, today's protests, in contrast, have become multi-ethnic and global. It's a multi-ethnic and global cry for justice, for a society that's built around non-violence toward neighbor, whoever that neighbor may be. Friends, we stand on the shoulders of giants. As a Christian, we see that these cries for justice and these dreams of a just world, of a world built around non-violence, that we actually stand on the shoulders of Jesus himself who although God did not grasp at his godness, but became the ultimate scapegoat for our sins, for our badness, for our injustices, and for all of the monstrous stories that have supported the way we've lived life, so that we might become people, individuals, and collectively a community of human beings that reflect the likeness of God who never scapegoats anyone. Our gospel reading this morning was a fragment of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, drawn out of the Beatitudes section. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God, and those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The call is to a Jesus kind of poverty of spirit that invites us to relate to God and to power and privilege in the likeness of God in our world, and the likeness of Jesus himself, For the sake of our neighbor, because we are all collectively now in him journeying toward this great day when heaven and earth will be so joined and hate and sorrow and inequity and injustices of every sort will be erased and gone forever. And when we will only be a people that reflect the love and the unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit back to God and back to our neighbor. A Jesus kind of mourning, a Jesus kind of anger over the pain and the brutal reality, painful and brutal realities that ordinary human beings live with beneath our world. Mourn. Enter their distress, your own distress, and that of your neighbor on the shoulders of Jesus, who invites us into the communion of the Trinity that we may love as we have been loved. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would be with us as we reflect on this prayer from Psalm 4 and we think about how we pull it towards our lives standing on the shoulders of Jesus who has loved us and gone before us and who promises that he will return and inaugurate this world that God will not be mocked. Would you give us hope so that we might be a people that pray, we cry out, and we would be a people in a community that learns to live that enters into spaces of anger without sin, and that learns to live and offer right sacrifices and listen to our neighbor, and that lives consistently with hope, keeping our eyes on the horizon of all that you promise. Would you meet us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we seek to be individuals in a community that embody these words. In Jesus' name, amen.